This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. We discussed Richard's latest essay in the monthly magazine. It's called Grandfathering the Australian Dream. We have the delight to be speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis, who is Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. And he's written an article in the monthly and it's called Grandfathering the Australian Dream. Hi, Richard, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Morning, morning. Um, So you've written this piece and um, first of all, it talks about grandfathering. Um, Now, maybe we should just debunk or de-econobabble, as you might say, what the term grandfathering means. And I'm sure we'll explicate this across the whole discussion. But just first of all, what does grandfathering really mean? Yeah, look, in in policy debates, you'll often hear politicians say, don't worry, you know, we're going to grandfather existing uh, existing investors or we're going to grandfather existing benefit recipients or the term grandfather is often used to tell everyone relax you know we're introducing some harsh changes but don't worry they probably won't hurt you now what the point i'm trying to make in the essay is that every time young people hear politicians say relax we're going to keep things as they are for, for people that are already in the system, but we're going to make it harder for those that are coming into the system. What you've really heard is be afraid if you're young because what we keep doing is is changing the law in ways that uh, makes uh, everything from welfare to the tax system more onerous for the young while protecting the old. But every time these changes are introduced, the 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 the, the, the econobabble, the weasel words that are used to hide this distributional fact is grandfathering. So, really, the point of the essay is to expose the fact that over the last twenty years we've changed so many laws in ways that have made life harder for young people while protecting uh, middle-aged and older Australians like myself. Indeed. And, I mean, it's often used in, particularly in debates around superannuation, for example, where people, or even investments, making financial investments, because people have made a decision based on current policy settings that is a long-term one, and they don't want to be disadvantaged by new policy settings and new arrangements. I mean, do they have any leg to stand on when we talk about the relevance of grandfathering just in a policy context? Well, I don't think so. Um, I mean, whenever we set out to protect one group in the community from risk, when we set out to say to one group in the community, you can have certainty, what we're really saying is that everybody else will have to deal with more uncertainty. So when we keep saying to retirees, don't worry, we'd never do anything that hurts you, well, what that means is that whenever the government needs to collect more revenue or save some more money, if they've ruled out ever hurting one group in the population, then they have to hit other groups even harder. Now, that's 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 democracy, that's politics. They're not in breach of the Constitution by loading up pain on young people. But when when these changes are announced, as I said, the, the wonderful bit of a conobabble of grandfathering is designed to make it all seem friendly and safe. But what they're really saying is, well, we'd, we'd never cut the age pension, so why don't we cut 
uh, why don't we cut youth allowance? Mm. We'd never cut. We we we'd never reduce tax concessions for superannuants. So why don't we make people with hex debts pay them off faster? Uh, we'd we'd never make people that bought assets before 1983 pay capital gains tax. So why don't we uh, why don't we increase income tax on younger people? You know, again, it's it's democracy. We're we're allowed to be brutal to uh, to young people if we want to. But, you know, let's, let's call it for what it is. Exactly. Well, I mean, creating and perpetuating inequity between the generations, essentially. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we have to be really careful here because, uh, you know, we often talk about this intergenerational conflict and, and don't get me wrong, I, I think that matters. But there, there are plenty of old people who are poor mm. and, there's plenty of, and there are plenty of young people who are quite wealthy. So uh, I think young people have to be careful to uh, not fall into the trap of just playing young versus old because uh, they don't have the numbers. No. When, the middle age, when, when the middle-aged combine with the old-aged, the young people lose. Yes. But when, when we talk about what's fair, you know, do, do, do people who earn more than a million dollars a year pay enough tax? Is it, is it okay that retirees that earn a million dollars a year pay not a cent in tax? Well, there's a whole bunch of older women who are retired on modest incomes that don't have a cent in superannuation. And frankly, young people who wish they could afford to buy a house and older women on low incomes paying rent have got a lot in common. So I, you know, part of what I'm trying to say in the essays is don't fall into the trap mm. of just playing young versus old. There's, there's a lot of young people struggling financially. There's actually a lot of old people struggling financially. And if they got together, if they worked together and, and, and made people that earn a million bucks a year and don't pay any tax pay some tax, then that would probably be good for low-income young people and low-income old people. Indeed. Well, that's a really smart and clever point, Richard, um, pointing out the nuance in this. <laughs> and it's it's often played out uh, on Twitter, this whole division and the, the I guess, ridiculousness of it um, that is whipped up by discussions around avocado toast, for example, really highlights this kind of furphy, I guess, which is to really cement the difference between the generations, at least at a superficial level, and also to suggest that um, that it's all on young people, that they've brought it all upon themselves um, by being selfish, uh, as are, you know, the unemployed, they've brought it all on themselves, obviously, by not having a job. Um, hopefully people can hear my sarcasm in there. Um, so, you know, it's, it is disturbing to see these divisions um, being, I guess, further cemented. You're, the opening night line of your piece is a really strong one. I want to read it out. Um, it says, the Liberal Party of Robert Menzies wanted all Australians to own their own home. The Liberal Party of Malcolm Turnbull wants us all to be landlords. Could you expound upon that for us? Yeah, no, look, once upon a time, uh, the, the Conservative Party in Australia, the Liberals, um, who, you know, the Liberal Party was built by Robert Menzies. There, there was no Liberal Party until he created it. Um, his, his number one kind of uh, policy goal, his, his political platform and his policy priority was uh, encouraging home ownership. And post-World War II, when he was Prime Minister, we saw this incredible 
uh, rapid and large increase in, in home ownership. And, and that was because, as a, as a Conservative Prime Minister, he genuinely believed that uh, if most people owned their own home, if they were paying off their own home and, and they'd they, they work hard, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd pay their bills on time, they wouldn't want to lose the stake that they had in their community... Um, and keep in mind that this was taking place at a time, and many of your listeners will find this a bit weird, but this was taking place at a time where Soviet Russia was a real genuine, not just military, but ideological threat to the West. And, and, and what Menzies wanted to do was to, to show people in Australia that they could all build something that they had a stake in. So Menzies' political strategy and his economic strategy revolved around giving people a stake in their community, literally. And, of course, these days we've got uh, Liberal politicians that own 15 houses extolling the virtues of everyone being a landlord, when, of course, we can't all be landlords. If, if everyone was landlords, who would rent our property <laughs> off us? Um, if we all owned two homes, who would our tenants be? So we've kind of seen this incredible reversion from the right in Australia away from literally giving working-class people a stake, not just for economic reasons but for political reasons. Uh, we've turned that on its head now and said, well, if you don't retire with a couple of houses, you're an idiot, you know, and, and those that do own a couple of houses should, should roll their eyes at those that, quote, didn't make good decisions early in life. Mm. Now big picture what I'm saying in the essay is that's a rather radical position to adopt for a conservative party because with rapid population growth with lots of people feeling no sense of connection to their community that's not a that's not a conservative community where people feel attached to each other that's actually the kind of community where people uh, where people feel that they've got no stake in it and um, there's a political and economic risk from that yes it's fragmented And you talk about older Australians um, worrying about a decline in, quote, Australian values. And these are some of the values you're talking about, which is, you know, people being self-sufficient, people owning their own homes. And But you say that it really, because of these changing circumstances and the change of policy um, of parties and the change of their expectations upon people's ability to own a home, that really it makes it impossible for young families, well, to even become a traditional family if that's what they want, um, and to own their own home. I mean, it's there still seems to be this assumption that you should be able to, if you would like to, own your own home, but then a lot of young people now are resigned to the fact that they won't ever have one. I mean, what, what is this disconnect between the expectation of um, the general Australian population and the, those traditional values you're talking about from the Menzies era? Yeah, look, I think that at the moment we're at a turning point in our politics. I don't know what comes next, but I think we can pretty much agree that what we've been doing won't be maintained. So the old-fashioned political consensus in Australia from from the left and the right was one of, you know, we're all in it together, mateship, egalitarianism. These, These words used to be based on a meaningful description of Australian society. We really did have... Uh, high levels of home ownership. We really did have uh, high minimum wages. We really were not perfect, but compared to other countries, uh, the gap between rich and poor wasn't large. There really were opportunities for people 
to to go to a good public school and go to a, a free university and and if they wanted to uh you know the opportunities for advancement were there well let's be clear that's over like we stopped that years ago but our political culture doesn't really admit that so what we now have is uh is politicians saying you know whatever happened to good old aussie values when at the same time the people, the politicians talking about good Aussie values are, uh, are trying to make it harder for young people who lose their job from a factory closure to get any unemployment benefits. We're, we're, we're making people pay uh, far more for education than, than the people talking about the, the, the Australian values ever did. So we've kind of got a rhetoric that no longer matches to our reality, but no one's quite called that out yet. And uh, I guess a big point in my essay is probably saying, well, actually, young people need to be the ones to call it out and rather than have older politicians preach to them about Aussie values. Uh, I think I think younger voters need to throw that back in people's faces and say, you've never treated us like that once. Absolutely. And you do say that uh, that the labelling of generations such as Gen X, Gen Y and Millennials are used to help, quote, disguise structural problems as behavioural traits. And these are the structural problems you're talking about that we're not actually confronting and having a proper discussion about and what young people do need to lead those discussions. Um, and you talk about labels preventing... Australians from focusing on the simple questions, but also the simple choices that governments make. And you referenced this at the the Progress Conference uh, last week on a panel you were on with uh, John Felsen and Sally McManus, and you were talking about the fact that uh, governments can choose to do what they like, but they're choosing to do what they're doing right now and, and they know what the impact upon this is. Um, and one of the examples you give in this essay is that a government that says it can't afford to reduce greenhouse gas emissions can afford to subsidise the construction of the Ad- Adani coal mine. I mean, if we bring it back down to this simplicity, which is that politicians have been making choices that largely have been obscured by this language about Australian values and generational differences... I mean, how do we break through this? Oh, look, yeah, I'm not sure. The first thing we have to do is admit that it's a problem. So, you know, to be clear, uh, my parents never went out for breakfast, you know, 60 years ago. They didn't. There were no cafes. They never had smashed avocado and toast in their life at a restaurant. Now, that's, that's I would suggest, irrelevant to who they are as people, who they are as Australians. But when we have a public debate that leads generations to look at each other through small differences like that, rather than large things that they have in common, like what kind of country they want to have, um, that's, a, that's a perfect environment to create division. Now, don't take me wrong, I don't want to make another uh, generational stereotype here, but it's it's common for young people to think that politicians are stupid and politics is boring. And that is, of course, exactly what politicians want them to think. Politicians, successful ones, are actually some of the smartest people in the country. And if you wanted to maintain the status quo, if you, if you wanted to keep things the way they are, or even better, if you wanted to cut taxes for rich people while making poor young people spend even more money on health and education... It takes real skill in a democracy to get away with that. I mean, how do you deliver tax cuts for the top 10% and more expensive health and education for the bottom 50%? 
that's not an accident. And, and one of the simplest ways to do that is to divide people, is to make young poor people and middle-aged poor people and old poor people feel like they've got nothing in common. It's to make high, you know, middle-income, middle-aged people think they've got nothing in common with young people and, 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 uh, and, and the wages they earn. So the divisions about smashed avocado and Anzac legends and, you know, white versus Muslim or men versus women, all of those divisions help to keep the public uh, distracted from big questions like, why do we want to be one of the lowest tax countries in the developed world? Is the fact that we've got far lower taxes than Europe the reason that our health and education system is so much more expensive than theirs? We're not allowed to ask big questions like that in Australia because we're off debating the minutiae of negative gearing or whether, whether the behavioural traits of young people explain why they can't afford a $2 million house. Mm, it's a clever distraction tactic, isn't it? Well, this is my point. It's very clever. Yeah. And, but, the, you know, the, the best trick the devil ever played was to convince people he didn't exist. And the best trick that politicians can play is to convince people that politics is boring. Mm. Because every year our federal government gives $400 billion to services that it likes there's no problem that <laughs> we can't solve in Australia with $400 billion. The question is, which problems do we want to prioritise? Are we worried about homes for the homeless or holiday homes for the holiday homeless? Are we worried about the, the pressures of retiring on an income of only $50,000 a year? Or are we worried that the, mid, the minimum wage is less than $40,000 a year? It's, it's up to us as a society to choose which big problems to pay attention to. And when we get divided into, do you go out for breakfast very often, then you know, we're, 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 we're prevented from seeing what we have in common with each other. Indeed. And you do talk about um, the the big picture as well in terms of the fact that it, as we are a democracy, we can actually decide not only the size of the economy and whether it grows in a certain way, but also its shape. Um, and that's something which it seems is much better for the, the Liberal Party and the coalition is let's, you know, forget about that. We can say a few words about innovation and, you know, hope that the economy transitions away from um, a resources boom into a knowledge economy by accident. I mean, how do we as a collective actually drive those discussions around um, what we want to prioritise and the shape of our economy? Because it does seem like, because when you're talking in this big picture terms, how do you, um, I guess, bring everyone together? Well, that's right. The question is, well, how do we do that? Well, the only way to do that is through engagement with it, with our political class. The only way really to do that is, is through democratic debate about what shape of country do you want to live in? Do you, we're going to spend $50 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet, but we can't afford to spend more on, on Indigenous disadvantage or we can't afford to fund uh, domestic violence shelters for women and, of course, we couldn't possibly uh, afford to, uh, to, to spend more money on health and education. That's not true. 
<laughs> it's clear we can afford to. The question is, which do we want to do more? Now, one of the biggest tricks that I'd suggest that the, 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 the conservatives, the, the neoliberal agenda is driven through our democratic debate is to keep asking people a phony question. Do you think the economy should grow or shrink? Do you think it should be bigger or smaller? And pretty much everyone will go with bigger because they understand that bigger means we'd have more resources and more capacity to solve more problems. But the idea that if only the economy was big enough, one day we'd be able to afford to look after the vulnerable, well, we've got 30 years of evidence suggesting that that never happens. What I think is a far more interesting and important democratic question is what shape do you think our economy should be? What, what do you think we should have more of and what do you think we could have less of? Because there are trade-offs. We, we're rich enough to have anything we want, but we're not rich enough to have everything we want. And having a democratic discussion about saying, well, if, if we did introduce the kinds of wealth taxes, for example, that are common in the US or common in Europe, if we did introduce those sort of wealth taxes and we spent more money on the kind of services that people had in other countries, uh, do you think that would be a good idea or a bad idea? Now, you don't have to be an economist to get engaged in that conversation. You just have to be a citizen. And I'd suggest that's exactly why people don't frame it that way. You know, as we've talked about before, I think all of the econobabble, all of that jargon about uh, about the economy is designed to stop people feeling confident to ask simple questions and demand simple answers. Exactly, exactly. And people can read your book, Econobabble, to delve into that aspect because it's something that will continue to arise. Um, every time we have a budget released or a policy discussion, it's the economics that is... Um, over-emphasised and obviously and then excludes people from really participating in this debate that we need to have. Um, and your, I guess the final um, point that you make in this piece is um, that really overall the strategy is about, is breaking up a cohesive society um, rather than building something up um, which really requires the unity that Menzies was looking for and he was doing that in one way through people being able to to own a stake in the community through owning a home. Um, but you say, and as you've just referenced, that division is a radical political strategy, not a conservative one. Do you think the conservatives might ever return to some point of um, emphasis on cohesion? Oh, look, I, I guess that's a question for them. But what they're doing at the moment is playing a very risky game. Because, uh, again, the reason that Menzies was so keen on cohesion was that he was looking around the world, literally at the time, and, and seeing riots in the US and riots in the UK. And, and riots don't usually happen in middle-class suburbs where people own their own homes. People usually burn down houses they don't own, uh, not <laughs> ones they're paying off. So, so Menzies saw... The, 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 the security need as well as the economic benefits of, of uniting people but I fear that we take that uh, we take this, the political stability and security of Australia for granted and now we have conservatives who are all too willing to try and divide, divide us on racial grounds 
to play new migrants off against old migrants, to play young people off against old people. Mm. And again, in the short term, in the short term, that can be a highly effective political strategy. But in the long term, uh, a community that can't work together, a community that doesn't have empathy for each other, that, that doesn't just have social consequences, that has dire economic and dire national security consequences. When, when we don't see ourselves being invested in a common project. So I, I fear that, as is, many, is often the case these days, short-term politics is getting in the way of, uh, of long-term policy, but the purpose of the essay is to, is to not just have a debate about negative gearing mm. or some other, some other specific policy idea, but rather to get young people thinking about what's happening to their democracy because they're the ones that are going to inherit it. Yes, and you did say um, at that conference at Progress um, that one of the things that politicians are most scared of is um, the massive feedback from their own electorates when someone's unhappy with how things are going. And it does seem quite simple, but a huge thing to actually um, voice your disapproval and then um, actively work together at a grassroots level to campaign for change. Oh, absolutely. And again, that's why convincing young people that politics is boring is so important for politicians. Imagine that you were a politician who was coming under enormous prof- uh, under enormous pressure from from a billionaire donor uh, to, 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 to change the law in some way that was good for them. But you also had hundreds of your constituents coming into your office saying, if you change that law, I will never vote for you again. That is what really puts politicians under pressure, knowing that if they deliver for their mates, they will lose votes amongst their constituency. But but if under pressure to deliver for your mates, you're confronted by lots of young people saying, well, politics is boring, they're all the same, doesn't matter who's in, none of them are going to look after me... That's the sound of a politician <laughs> relaxing. <laughs> nothing, seriously, nothing yeah. better for a politician to hear than that a large segment of society thinks they're all as bad as each other and it doesn't matter who they vote for because that's one way of saying, I'm not putting any pressure on you. Mm. So, yeah, my, my, my advice to young people is if, and it's a big if, but if you really care about the cost of housing, if you're really worried about the cost of education, if you're really worried uh, about uh, access to services or same-sex marriage, whatever it is you're interested in, go and see a politician, be polite, and tell them that if they listen and if they do what you want, then you'll vote for them. And if they don't, you won't. Don't call them names. Don't say they're all the same. Vote for the one who's closest to what you want. And then as soon as they're in, go and tell them unless they lift their game even further, you're going to switch again. <laughs> and to be... Well, but this yeah, no, and to, totally. And, and to be clear, yeah. older people have figured this out <laughs> and older people spend a lot more time writing those letters, mm. making those phone calls and having those meetings. They do, they do. And it's writing letters and having phone calls is... Um, Important. Social media is no substitute for that. So I think we need to actually be a bit more direct. Absolutely. And, you know, unless I sound too optimistic, have a look at the UK election. Yes, nearly no. Every, nearly every analyst has drawn the same conclusion. Young people stayed away from the Brexit vote and, and now their capacity to travel and work around Europe has been curtailed by older voters that don't want to travel and work in Europe. 
and they all showed up at this election and, and delivered the largest ever swing to an opposition in, in modern UK history. So it, politicians are the ones that want young people to think their vote doesn't count. History makes quite clear that it does. Exactly, exactly. Um, thank you, Richard, so much for um, putting a bit of a firecracker up the young generation, <laughs> which I include as being myself too. Um, we need to get our act together and I very much appreciate your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, a wonderful institute doing really important work. Um, And yes, you can check out his piece, Grandfathering the Australian Dream, in the monthly, the latest edition. It's also online if you just Google that one. We can also put up a link on Twitter. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.